Caught Offside with Andrew Gunling and J.J. Devaney. Oh, yes. Caught Offside from the suburbs of New York City in an apartment in Brooklyn. Andrew Gunling and J.J. Devaney. It's Devunling night. What's up, brother? Oh, Andrew, I I, I got to go a bit inside baseball here. No, pull, ba- pull back the curtain. You had just the best ever fail of, of an intro. <laughs> Yo, caught offside from just a – and then a pause. Because I wanted to say something about the, the, the like hurricane that blew through here today, but uh, the words escaped me. I'm not, I'm not good with words. But, um, yeah, my, my yard was just like – it was like a tree branch graveyard. I could like I, I didn't I'd heard a tropical storm was coming, but I just I don't know for whatever reason I just didn't think much of it. And then I looked out the window this afternoon, and the wind gusts were probably about I'd say like 60, 70 miles an hour. And there's trees down all over the neighborhood. It was it was more than I was expecting. That's for sure. I felt alive today. I went onto the roof to secure oh our 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 chairs and our decking and and everything with another guy, and it was just lashing rain. And we did that thing that guys do when it's raining hard and we've just done manual labor. We get back into the stairwell after making sure that the chairs and stuff haven't blown everywhere. And I made this noise. Woo! Just like that. And he did the same thing after me. You know, they Um, do always say that the best place to be in the middle of a raging thunderstorm is on top of a roof of a tall building. There was no thunder, you fool. It was rain and it was uh, typhoony. There was a tornado in Jersey. Tornado warning across this fair city of ours, which was incredible. Ah, weather. What a show we have coming up for you. Uh, it is Devunling night. We'll get to that in uh, in mere moments. Sure, the pandemic has, has altered our plans a bit. Usually the show takes place from the beautiful caught offside ballroom, uh, but tonight it will be done via Squadcast, a uh, podcasting server. Um, but it will still have all the pomp and frills of the Devunlings from years past. So we'll get to all that. John Champion, who is now the voice of MLS and one of the voices of US soccer for ESPN, he'll join us as we are on the eve of MLS is back semifinals. So uh, he'll talk with us and kind of talk about what we've seen so far and what's to expect as we hit the final four. Uh, Champions League, the UEFA Champions League returns on Friday and Saturday as they finish up the round of 16 second legs. Uh, but first, JJ. First, we will start with what happened over the weekend, and it is Arsenal capping off one of the oddest seasons in recent Arsenal memory, uh, a season that was on the brink of being forgotten by every Arsenal fan under the sun, uh, but it now will be remembered as the season that culminated in them winning their record-extending 14th FA Cup. Uh, as a as an unabashed Arsenal hater, I don't, I don't know what to say in a moment like this. I guess I'll I'll say this, and I'm going to be professional. I'm going to remove all of my biases from the conversation. I will say that for a team of players that have been ripped consistently throughout the course of the season, um, you know, David Luiz, Mustafi, uh, guys like that who have just taken it week after week. Granit Xhaka. As a neutral, you could feel good for those guys that – at the end of the season, they showed up in Arsenal's most important game of the year. And look, it's undeniable. They they won a trophy that every other club craves. You can say what you want about the FA Cup and, and whether or not the importance of it is reduced, but everyone wants to win it. Uh, so you tip your hat to them. They're not the best team in the league, but they found a way and they 
you know, it was not an easy semifinal or final in terms of their opponent, and they got it done. And, and considering the way they started the game, Chelsea were all over them, completely overran in midfield, and Arteta, just a little bit before the water break in the first half, found a way to to change that and to get on top again and flood the midfield and have more bodies in there and stop Chelsea. And look, the second half refereeing performance from Anthony Taylor was not good. There's no point saying otherwise. I was a bit surprised Chelsea fans were complaining at half time, but the second half, I'd have to agree with them. He, he was dreadful. But that aside, uh, and injuries aside, I think Pulisic going off was, was a huge, huge factor for Arsenal. But that aside, Arsenal did play well and they took their goals extremely well. The penalty and um, I loved Obama Yang's second goal. So I, I think there was there's signs that things at least tactically and at least from a resiliency standpoint, are going in Arsenal's direction. Arsenal over the last maybe decade, if they start a game as poorly as they did in the FA Cup final, they usually lose that and they didn't. And again, we saw them show resiliency in the semi-final too. So you're right, it's been a terrible league season, but there is a glimmer of hope for Arsenal. They are showing signs of life. I mean, again, they'll have to go into the transfer market and we're going to get to that a little bit later. The, the noises coming out of that would suggest that they followed a good Arsenal sign of recovery with a very old Arsenal contract offer that's on the table for a Chelsea player. But we, we can talk about that later. Yeah, and look, ultimately, Aubameyang had two goals in the semifinal. He had two goals in the final. He's fantastic. Uh, and he dragged this team to this point. Um Yes, but I, I think as well, there were performances. Mustafi in the semifinal put in a huge performance. Uh, um, David Luiz did also. And, and, and Tierney, after such an injury-plagued start to life at Arsenal, is, is becoming a really solid player for them. So it's not just Aubameyang. The difference with Aubameyang and the difference with Arsenal is that Arsenal will get one good chance with Aubameyang and he will invariably finish it. And that makes them so potent. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see what they do with him now because, I mean, look, you're right. Other players, you don't win this without at least some other guys performing well in a big in a big moment. But he's clearly the focal point of this team. And, you know, with his contract expiring at the end of next season, he's 31 years old, which kind of makes his contract situation all the more interesting. But you've just seen how integral he is. All the leverage you would think is on his side in terms of this negotiation with Arsenal. Um, I don't know how this is going to go. Uh, is there just like you you just wonder what is Aubameyang's ambition because Arsenal are now going back to the Europa League when he's clearly Champions League quality you know he's clearly uh, capable of being the first team striker on a team in any league contending for league titles uh, and right now he's not getting that with Arsenal so you just wonder okay he's 31 this is he's due for his last massive payday um, if he wants to continue playing in Europe's big leagues he could get one when he's 35 if he wants to go to China but I don't he's not at that point right now so what does he do? Like, is there any sum of money that Arsenal, if they just throw the bank at him and we're like, all right, look, we need you desperately, so name your price. Is that enough to keep him? Or is he somebody who thinks there is no m- amount of money that they can pay me? I want to be playing at a club where I can be competing for titles and, and competing in the Champions League. I, I don't know how this is going to go. I don't know, but I, I do feel there's a vibe off him that he does want to stay. And he's the main man in this team, Andrew. There's 31 and there's 31. You know, Vardy and Aubameyang are guys who are in that that sweet spot where I'm not so sure 
goal scorers like that can be can be found and replaced very easily. Even if you're going out and you get a 23 year old, you're still waiting. He's at his he's in his peak right now, and and there's nothing to suggest to me that he's gone into any kind of decline since he turned 30. If anything, he's getting better. And I think if you're Arsenal, you don't get spooked by what you did with Mesut Ozil and what you did with Mkhitaryan in the past, and you go and you throw the contract at something that is really delivering for you. And I don't know if they're going to do that, but they should definitely try. That would be that would be my my last word to Arsenal would be if you're going to do something this summer that's big, make sure it's with the player that's already there and give him the contract he wants. Yeah. Uh and then of course there's Christian Pulisic, which you know, my phone <laughs> just exploded in the around the fifth minute of this match. Seeing him do that in Wembley in an FA Cup final. I don't care if it's for Chelsea. I don't care who it's for. It was a really, really cool moment. Um, now, sadly, it was kind of the best of times, worst of times for Pulisic on the day um, as he went off early in the second half with a hamstring injury, and it was just tough to watch. And you you could just see, like, that moment kind of encapsulated everything about him. Like, he clearly – the hamstring went mid-run, and he finished his run and even attempted a shot. Uh, as he's like screaming in pain, the guy like you can just see his attitude and and his competitiveness. Um, it was hard to watch. It was hard that whole sequence of events, that whole scene of him on the ground being carried off. It was it was tough, man. I, I felt terrible for him. Obviously, um, his message after the game seemed to be a little bit more very up- positive. We will be back before you know it, which suggests whatever scan they may have got. And and he didn't, it wasn't immediately after that he posted this. It was the next day or, or quite deep into the next day, which suggests he may have been assessed. And he, he went on his Instagram. He's, I, I don't think he's a prolific social media kid. doesn't seem like it anyway. And uh, he posted, I'll, I'll be back before you know it. Now, look, the thing we know about hamstrings is that they're, I mean, it's such a cliche, but it's so true. They're so tricky to get right. We don't know what grade tear. Is it a tear? Is it a strain? Um, so we're, we're, we're really kind of fumbling around in the dark, but from his own demeanor on social media, it would suggest he'll be back. It's not our, it's not as bad as I think. Like I, I I was thinking something of Michael Owen versus Leeds proportions in 98 when he just was in a full sprint after a ball, not dissimilar and then pulled up and like he torn the hamstring completely, snapped it completely in, in half. And as we know, it was well, I know it's 20 years ago, but they never put it back together. So I don't think it's as bad as that. No, you certainly hope not. And look, the timing, it, look, there's never a great time for stuff like this to happen. And he's going to, I'm, I'm assuming, miss their Champions League second leg match, which the scoreline is already kind of whatever. Uh, but the timing is not awful in that it's now the off season, uh, So he has time to hopefully be ready for the, you know, I, I know the Premier League is going to creep up pretty quickly. Um for the 2020-2021 season, but he's got time now to recuperate and and hopefully have this thing heal. Uh, so let's do this. Uh, we'll do the devundling shortly. We have a couple other things to mention, but like this is the end of Christian Pulisic's inaugural season with Chelsea and in the Premier League, and I feel like you know, we should kind of give an overall evaluation of it. And here's what I would start out by saying is, um, you know, we you and I, we've made jokes over the years. And like, we, we started Boy Wonder Watch when he was like eight years old. And you know, at times we'll exaggerate. But I'm going to say this in all seriousness now. This guy is different. Like he is not Landon Donovan. He is not Clint Dempsey. Uh, he is he is different than all of them. And like, 
you know, there, there are going to be people who continue to hear us talk about Pulisic and they're going to think that like, this is all through American lenses, that this is through our American brains, people who aren't U.S. fans, but I, like, I don't care where he's from. Like my eyes and my brain, American or not, tell me that this, this kid is special. Um, Bill Connolly wrote something for ESPN FC and he's basically, this is leading up to the FA Cup final. Um, and so even before Pulisic scored that goal in the fifth minute, and he's basically trying to find out at the end of the season, who does this season, what, who are the guys that the season compares to that Pulisic just had? And, and here's what he says. He says, okay, let's create a specific type of attacker from a player pool consisting of everyone in Europe's big five leagues. And he lists different qualifications that those players need to meet. He needs to have played at least a thousand minutes this season, averaged at least 55 touches per 90, attempted 35 passes, uh, and taken seven touches in the opponent's penalty area. Um, then he goes from there. By that criteria alone, we're down to just 14 players already. And these are guys such as Messi, Neymar, Mbappe, Raheem Sterling, Riyad Mahrez. Now he says, let's take it a bit further and make our player a solid passer, completion rate of at least 80%, with a better-than-average nose for goal, at least 0.4 goals per 90. Let's also make sure he's involved in team defense by averaging at least 3.7 ball recoveries per 90. Now he says this. So by those qualifications on top of the other ones, now we're down to just five. Neymar, Atalanta's late-blooming star, Joseph Illich, and three of the best wingers in the Premier League. Mares, Sadio Mane, four players, by the way, who we've mentioned now, who are at least 28 years of age, um, who are past or in their athletic primes. And Pulisic, 21-year-old American in his first Premier League campaign. So now I'm not saying that Christian Pulisic is Sadio Mane and, and Neymar. Nobody's saying that, but like you can see these numbers and you can at least say, okay, he is a cut above the rest in, in this league. Like he is, he is among the upper echelon of players and he's only 21 years old. I think you can say those things and not feel like you're saying them just through an American lens. I totally agree. I absolutely agree. His, and I don't want to sound this, you know, to make this sound derogatory, but to, to start with what you started with, he's not like the other American players we've seen. His touch is tighter. He's comfortable on both sides. When he attacks a player, he dribbles in a certain way. His body form is totally different. Look at his, the quick feet for the goal, Andrew. Yeah. To try and think of another American player that's doing that. There isn't one. We've never seen one. And, and, and those stats, they're as great and all as they are. I mean, you just need to watch the kid. Watch what he did when he slid past um, Van Dijk and Gomez, I think it was, for that for, the, for to set up the goal for um, Abraham or whoever scored for, for Chelsea. Um, when, the difference he made to that Chelsea team when he came on against Liverpool in that game. He's playing at an elite level. He absolutely is. And um, he might feature later on in my team of the season. Oh, my God. Now... Look, here's the other thing to remember about him too. Like this is his first year in the league and he's, you know, uh, he's doing it on on for a manager that he doesn't really know. He's doing it on a team and a style that is new to him. Like this is it can it can only go up from here. Now, here's the only thing that we have to say. And of course, this comes on the heels of what just happened in the FA Cup. Like injuries can slow him down. And that is truly I think there's enough of a track record where that's truly worrisome. Because, J.J., it, if this were a normal season without this unexpected three-month stoppage that we just had, what would we be saying at the end of Chelsea's season if we were analyzing Christian Pulisic? Like, he might not have returned from that injury that put him on the sidelines back in January. So right. let, let's be honest. Most of what we're saying right now and what we're feeling right now is based on what we saw 
following the restart. Um, look, look, so, we've you know, and unfortunately, I don't know how you combat muscle injuries. I, I don't, I don't know what the best way is to to alter the course that that his career could go if this continues to be an issue. I don't want to be raining on the parade, but at least two months ago, we we said that there is nothing stopping Christian Pulisic from being at the elite level and staying there, except durability. And I saw the interview with Adam Lalana last week where he talked about leaving Liverpool and he talked about how Henderson and him used to take rides to the training ground. And you think of a player like Adam Lalana who's gone through all those injuries and he said these words that chilled me down my spine because I thought about guys like, like Pulisic and young prospects like Giovanni Reyna. Not saying Giovanni Reyna has any muscle injury. I'm not, I have no insight into that. I'm just saying it's the one thing stopping these guys. Yeah. And Lalana said... Sometimes you do all you can. In fact, you do everything you can, and it doesn't matter. You still get injured. And he starts crying, and it's this deep frustration in the professional to have to try and and cope with the fact that they can do everything right, and it still doesn't matter. And that's my major fear for him going forward, that we'll have these constant issues. And I said before, I think I said when he moved to Chelsea, uh, Chelsea are going to have to manage minutes with him. I, I think that's clear already. I really feel that way. He had the calf injury that hampered a large portion of his last season at Borussia Dortmund, and then he came into Chelsea, and then he gets a, a you know he, he had a, he had a knock. Then he was out for a prolonged period of time with his ankle. I think was the last thing, and then we see the hamstring. And I, I just think you know you have to you have to treat a player like that with with kid gloves. I think we've seen that already. With that, right. and again, I'm not a doctor. I don't know what's going on right now, but surely the records suggest that. And the problem is, like, this isn't like if Christian Pulisic gets hurt for the U.S. men, and when he's healthy again, it's like, oh, Christian, right this way back into the starting eleven. Like, we saw what happened to Borussia Dortmund. He got hurt, and now, like, Jaden Sancho is a superstar, and that's it. He's done there. And like, it it could happen at Chelsea too. These are not bums that they're bringing in. You know, Werner, Ziyech. Uh, like this is this is a team that will continue to be loaded. Mason Mount has shown a ton of promise as a really young player. Like, he's not going anywhere. So, it's. If you get hurt too much, it's he's not miles better. He's not miles. Anything. I, I agree, but like miles better. But Mason Mount is all these guys are also going to, they're young players too, and they're going to, du- durability, durability is everything. It's so important. Yeah. Um, so we'll continue to talk about him. We'll monitor how, uh, how his injury, uh, recovery is progressing, and we will continue to root for him because it was, uh, Honestly, it was one of the highlights of this season. I said last week that like I didn't enjoy the season, but uh, my God, did I enjoy him? I mean, from that that initial hat trick that he scored, uh, what was it against Burnley? Um, yeah. Through through this performance in the FA Cup final, he was. You know, we all came into this with a little bit of trepidation. Is he ready to take this leap into the Premier League and be this player who costs seventy million and and fill the shoes, whether, whether we want to, we can call it whatever we want. They lost Eden Hazard. And now this kid comes in on a huge price tag. And these, those expectations were going to be there. And there was, you know, there's concern. Like, can he fill those shoes? I don't know if anyone can fill those shoes, but he's certainly on the right trajectory. So props to him because uh, it was not easy. This was not easy. He had to fight for his spot on that team. And, you know, as an American fan who, who loves this kid, we are, we are very proud of what we just saw him do. It was really, really cool. Uh, a couple other things, JJ, and then the Devunlings. Um, as we always say, we try not to deal in rumors. The transfer market is is an S show. Uh, but when you see names like this, you have to at least mention them. Uh, Sky Sports has been saying now for a couple days, really, that Manchester United look like they're closing in on Jaden Sancho. Again, I take all of these rumors with a grain of salt. 
Um, but I'm curious for your thoughts on that. I mean, the key, the key to what you're saying is there are all these rumors. We're not hearing it from one outlet. You know, it's not some guy on Twitter. It's, it's Jan Agafjortoft tweeted it today. He's contacts, deep contacts in the Bundesliga. He said it will happen this summer. We're in the holding the feet to the flames part of the transfer deal. United are going to get absolutely rinsed, rinsed for this. And that's just the, that is the phase we're at. Um, Mark Ogden expects it to be completed, um, I think, in the next few days. It's going to happen. It's going to be an enormous fee. And the wages are going to be spectacular. But it's happening. And um, I, I, I'm, I, I would believe everything that you're reading right now. He is, I'm so torn on this because I, I really do believe that he is sensational. And he's young, and so United are getting him like pre-prime. This is not usually a thing that we see with United, you know, when they go after the Alexis Sanchez's and Angel Di Maria's and players like that. Like they're getting this kid before he hits his peak. Um, but you're right; the money is extraordinary, and they do need help elsewhere. Uh, if this inhibits them from addressing central defense, I think it. Or, I think it most. Sh- yeah, I think it most surely will, Andrew. I think they're pushing their chips to the middle of the table and hoping that they can figure out what's going on at the back there with some kind of combination. Um, but I, I just can't see how it's not happening. With the, not because I have any particular insight, but when you see the range of people piling in, people you respect in the game, like Mark Ogden, Jan Agafjortoft, I just mentioned there, Sky Sports as well. I, I think this is on. I think it's happening, and I think you're right. I think the money will be so big that it will curtail what else they'll be able to do in the transfer market. Unless they have somebody ready that they're ready to ship out for a big sum. I don't know. Who, but who? No, nobody could touch that. Well, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen with David De Gea and I don't know what sum of money he could fetch and who, who's really in demand for him right now. Like, yeah, yeah I don't right. see it. No, you're right. There's, there's no, they're going to have to just take a massive financial loss in this transfer window. If they feel like if you, I guess if you're close and they feel like they are, and it's time to go for it right now, maybe they feel like city is in some kind of transition phase or Liverpool can't sustain this and their moments coming, then all right, you push your chips to the table and you do this. Um, but yeah, it, it does come with risks on the back end. Um, you referenced this before could be in uh, looking at Williams final days with Chelsea and an interesting landing spot, potentially JJ. Um, interesting. Uh, Surprising at first, but it shouldn't be surprising. So of late at, at, at Arsenal, we've seen a lot of control in the hands of an agent, one of the super agents, Andrew, Kia Jurabchin. And would you believe it? Kia Jurabchin is also Willian's agent. Now, Chelsea, in a bizarre move, in my view, have tabled an offer that is a big contract, that a three-year contract that would take him, I've heard a two-year and a three-year contract, that would take him to age 33 or 34 at Chelsea. And I'm like, why? Like, I don't understand it. I, th- I, I I thought with the plethora of attacking talent that you have at the club now, you'd have to move somebody on to balance the books. But then again, maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe when you've got the amount of money Chelsea have, this kind of thing doesn't matter. But it seems as if that's going to be rejected by Willian and he will end up at Arsenal. Kia Jurabshin's Arsenal. Hmm. It's, it's incredible what's going on at Arsenal because that's the kind of move I thought Arteta would push against. That's the kind of move that I really thought was Arsenal's past. It's almost like a late Vengarian move, isn't it? Vengarian. I just made that up. Arsene Wenger. Um, that's what it feels like. And it doesn't feel like good business at all. He's going to be on huge wages well into his thirties. 
I, it makes no sense to me except the fact that the agent has links with Arsenal and has other players there and obviously has the ear of the, if I guess, sporting director. I, I think that's his title anyway, Raul Sanlehi. So I don't understand any of this, but William's on the move. Yeah. Um, a couple other things real quick here, JJ. Uh, Eddie Howe and Bournemouth have parted ways by mutual consent, or so they say, which I, I could see that being the case. Where does he go? Is he still a... Uh, is he now become a hot commodity for Premier League clubs who aren't sure what they think of their current managers? I don't know. How much has last season, uh, how much has the last two seasons of transfers tarnished the Eddie Howe brand? I mean, we consider him a great coach. He got Bournemouth playing, like we said last week, lovely football in the Premier League. But uh, I'm not so sure. Maybe like I thought he would go down and attempt to bring them back up. He's never been anywhere else in his career. Bournemouth is something that he's been a part of the build. Uh, he's part of the DNA there. He's part of the, you know, he's part of everything they've done. And I thought he would have another go at bringing them back up. Clearly, that's not 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 going to be the case. Um, I don't know where he goes. Like I try to think of clubs he goes to. Where does he go in the Premier League now, Andrew? I'm well. Right now, I don't see an obvious candidate for that. But I mean, look, manager musical chairs. Like somebody's going to lose their job in October. Uh, and you know, I would imagine if he hasn't been scooped up by them by somebody, he'll be he'll be among the first choices. Um, but yeah. yeah, I don't know. Um, and then finally, JJ, welcome back to the Premier League, Fulham. You must be delighted. <laughs> I mean, look, I'm not a Fulham supporter, but uh, you know, they've they've been very kind to Americans over the years. Uh, right. fun game, two, one in extra time, Joe Bryan, terrible game, well, terrible game. I, I mean, fun in that it was an exciting conclusion. Joe Bryan scores twice for the free Fulham. kick. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. That was, you don't see many free kicks that, that look like that, like bouncing no. well in front of the keeper. And yet he's still so far from it. Yeah. Very weird goal. So the keeper's gambling because from that angle, you expect a cross put, put into the ball, into the box. It was like 40 yards out and it didn't happen. And he's gambled. He's come to the edge of the box. Not the edge of the box. So what am I talking about? He's come off his line, well off his line, anticipating the cross. And uh, Joe Bryan has just whipped it. And it's he's got so much pace and accuracy. But what I couldn't understand was the position is not great, but he should be able to recover. His footwork's just dreadful and he doesn't get back at all. It's his, his dive was like so dramatic and exaggerated and not close to the ball. Yeah. It's just, um, but a it was an moment. awful moment. No, for him, yeah. Um, but but I, I still, I, I know he's going to get hammered, but the execution was so good. I want to emphasize that. That's 40 yards out. Incredible goal. And Fulham are back. I would say overall, the uh, the three clubs coming back, like I know you have these years where you, you'll, you'll hear a name of a club that's coming up and you'll roll their eyes and, and you'll say something like, oh, why couldn't it be Leeds? Well, you're getting Leeds. We're getting Fulham back, full America. and. You know, like maybe West Brom or that club, but like they have a nice Premier League history, and, right? Yeah, you know, so I think in terms of the three coming up, I'm I'm good with this. I feel feel pretty good about these three until Nottingham Forest and Sheffield Wednesday are back up. I'll never be satisfied. So who are you? Who are you kicking out right now? Who would I love to get? Yeah, to get those two in. Who are you knocking out? Uh, I'm knocking out Fulham. Oh, they're not getting back up. You are and, all, the, all the nice things that you could say about Pulisic as an American. Uh, and uh, do you know what? I get rid of the baggies as well. It's not like they haven't had their turn in the Premier League. So get rid of those two. For who? Say it again. Who you want back? Sheffield Nottingham. Wednesday and Nottingham Forest. Okay. 
All right. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna hate you for that. Uh, up next, JJ, it is the 2020 Devonlings. Like I said, it's not in the ballroom, but the awards must go on. The show must go on. We will be back with that in mere moments. John Champion a little bit later in the program. This is a big one. This is a big one. Don't go anywhere. English Premier League Defundling Awards Ceremony. Now, here are your hosts, Andrew Gundling and J.J. Devaney. Oh, thank you. Thank you all, you fine, fine people. We appreciate it so very much. We are so happy and thrilled to be here at this 2020 Devundling Spectacular. This was a this was a weird season. It was a clunky season. It was an awkward season, and I expect this award show to reflect that perfectly oh it absolutely will can i start with the clunkiness we just got an invoice from andy dick andy dick as you suggested was going to host the awards he can't do it but we signed a contract so we still have to pay him so we're off to a bad start already is that that's how it works huh even though he's not here doing what he was what he had promised he act of god still gets paid (laughs) act of god all right well that's yeah what are we going to do? We have the money. So what's the what's the problem? Uh, this should be fun. So for people who haven't listened to this before, we kind of just go through all of the main awards from the course of the season. Um, we don't always have the highest regard for some of the awards that are chosen officially. So we place all of the prestige in these awards that we hand out. Um, it should be fun. It should be fun. Jim. So we got player of the year. We've got moment of the season. We've got all those things. And we oh, pick yeah. right at the end, we pick our, our, our best 11. And right. sh- the big award of the night is player of the season. Yeah. That's, that's what you stay awake for. Uh, but all right, let's get it started right now. But this is another big one. Manager of the season. Um, can I go first here? You may. All right, JJ. Chris Wilder is my manager of the season. And I will say apologies to Jurgen Klopp because uh, full disclosure, when I was going through this, I had I had like literally written down Jurgen Klopp as my the guy who I wanted to be my manager of the season. And I started to kind of do the research to back him up as my choice. And as I was going through it, I wound up having like the research basically changed my mind and pushed me to Wilder instead. Because we talk a lot on this show about how money generally equates to your place in this league. And then I read about Sheffield United from Steve Price at Forbes. Not that I needed to be convinced that Sheffield United don't spend much money, but this article, I just, it was interesting to me. Uh, He writes, another way to judge managers is by factoring in the salaries of their players as salaries and league position often go hand in hand based on sporting intelligence's global sports salary survey of 2019. Sheffield United have the lowest salaries in the Premier League, while the two Manchester clubs have the best paid players. The salary gap is so wide that working out how many points a side earns per dollar spent on salary is pointless. Manchester City's average salary is almost 10 times that of Sheffield United's. Sheffield United's finished Sheffield United finished 11 places above what their salary expectation was. 14 wins, JJ. That's what Chris Wilder got the Sheffield United side to. That's the same number as Arsenal. Uh, 12 losses, that's the same number that Chelsea and Leicester City had. Uh, Their record against the big six, teams that Sheffield United should not be competing against. Three wins, three draws, five losses, 12 points from those games is nothing to sneeze at for a club predicted by many to not only go down, but to finish 20th in the league. 
Uh, and the style of play, which he had them do it, he did not change. He basically had conviction in the way that Sheffield United got here. He continued to play that way. It pretty much took the league by storm. The restart began, and when we did our EPL refresher for the restart, like they were right there among the clubs that we were talking about being a Champions League contender. Now, they dropped off a bit in those final few games, but his mark was left behind for sure. Uh, the secret's out. I don't know if it'll be as easy for them next season, but in terms of this season, the job he did there was sensational and he's my manager of the year. It's a, it's a fine choice and a choice I, I thoroughly endorse. And when we get to looking back at last season's predictions, you'll see how how badly how badly I got it wrong over Sheffield United. But I have explanations for that. Uh, my manager of the season is Jurgen Klopp, Andrew. And I, I don't need to go into big detail as to why that might be. It just comes down to following up on the intensity of the 18-19 season, and to not miss a beat, in fact, go on and surpass that, is just incredible. Uh, mentality monsters is what he called his side, but he sets the mentality. He sets the tone, and it's absolutely key to keeping this side motivated. To go again and win the Premier League after racking up 99 points is just, it's, it's unbelievable. And to win it as early as they did. You know, last season, I had the feeling that at the end of it, we Liverpool had expended so much energy, so much effort trying to reel in Manchester City. And yet they did it again and they surpassed it. They had the league won in record time. This is an amazing achievement. And by the way, it's not like he went out and spent millions between the two seasons to bridge the gap between this season and last season. They went again. That takes the huge mentality that he talks about. And again, it comes from the top. It's his leadership. Incredible. Jurgen Klopp, I couldn't pick anyone else. Yeah, and, and I can't get on you for that. Like I said, I was going to pick him. It's a club that is clearly crafted in his image. And like, look at the success that they're having playing that way. So yeah. absolutely, absolutely. All right, uh, match of the season. I love this one. Uh, I'm going to go first here, JJ. We go back now. The cold, very cold winter, December 27th at the Molyneux. Hope was fading for Manchester City to mount a proper title race. Meanwhile, hope was rising that Wolves could be true contenders to break up the big sixes stranglehold at the top of the table and perhaps even nudge their way into the top four. The atmosphere was sensational. God, I miss saying that, by the way. And the game matched the environment. Uh, what a start. Ederson, if you remember, was sent off early in the first half. Uh, red card, which sent a jolt through the match. But even with that, it's just it's not in City's DNA to sit back and fortify against anyone. And sure enough, just a short while later, Riyad Mahrez drew a penalty, which was saved by Rua Patricio. But Wolves were ruled to have encroached, and Raheem Sterling got another chance, which was saved again. But the rebound cruelly came right back to Sterling, tapped in for the goal, 1-0 to City. Then the score still 1-0. Kevin De Bruyne played in Raheem Sterling with a beautiful ball. Sterling's finish was even better as he tripped Patricio, 2-0 to City in the 50th. Wolves generating chances, but it didn't feel like it was going to happen. But then in the next few minutes, Wolves controlled the run of play, generated a near penalty and a near goal. Still nothing to show for, but then 55th minute, Adama Traore, this is one of the games where I'd say he really put himself on the radar of Premier League fans, smashed one from about 25 yards out, past the keeper, 2-1. Wolves kept the pressure on. Pace was intense. Then 82nd minute, they hadn't been able to find that equalizer, but probably one of those memorable goals of the season. Remember, JJ, we talked about this goal in depth after this game. Benjamin Mendy gets the ball on his own end line, about 18 yards from goal, and he just kind of stops and does nothing with it. Triore comes over, body checks him off the ball, 
takes possession, plays in a perfect pass to Raul Jimenez for the equalizer, Bedlam. And then seven minutes later, we thought 2-2 would have been enough for Wolves. No, they kept the pressure on. Matt Doherty works a great 1-2 with Raul Jimenez. And then this. Well, for me, John, he's gone from disappointing in terms of his end product. Doherty opening up for him. The winner, Matt Doherty, places one on the far corner, gives Wolves the lead. They uh, they were hanging on for dear life in stoppage time. Manchester City were awarded a free kick from prime territory for goal scoring. And Raheem Sterling took the kick, looking for the hat trick, lifted it over the wall, and hit the crossbar. That would be it. Match of the season. Wolves coming back from two goals down. 3-2, your final. And that was John Champion on the call there as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Which was pretty cool. Um, I'm going to keep this quick because uh, we don't need to go through it in the depth that you did there. My God, man. Uh, Let's go back to Sunday, the 24th of November, 2019. Sheffield United 3, Manchester United 3 at Bramall Lane. What a game this was. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's team coming back from 2-0 down. And honestly, if I thought there was a point at which I saw the, the... the spectre, Andrew, of a new Manchester United. It was in this game. Uh, Williams scored a brilliant goal on 72 minutes, followed up by Greenwood at 77. And in the 79th minute, Marcus Rashford puts United 3-2 ahead. But wait, Ali McBurney with a late, late equaliser. We had to go through the whole VAR to make sure that there wasn't a handball in the lead-up to the goal. 3-3, brilliant game. And like I said, an indication that United were beginning to hum again. There you go. What a game. Uh, let's see now. Signing of the season. You want to go first? Yes. Um, I'm going to go and do something a little bit controversial. But it was the signing of the season. Last summer, Southampton decided to move for Danny Ings on a permanent contract. And they signed him from Liverpool. And I'm going to read some names. And this will all make sense. Jamie Vardy. Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. Raheem Sterling. Mohamed Salah. Harry Kane. And Sadio Mane, joint second top scorer with Aubameyang for Southampton, Danny Ings with 22 goals. You consider the injury-plagued career of this player since he left Burnley in 2015. And you could not have possibly thought that he would be the leading striker at a revitalized Southampton under Ralph Hasenhutl. You wouldn't be even contemplating how important his runs would be. You wouldn't even be thinking that he could change his game to suit Southampton's style, that he would be even able to press as a player. You just thought this was a guy who was going to be cursed by injuries and he's found his way back. He is such a quality finisher we've seen this season and he's been so good that he is now in the elite of the Premier League for this season. And look, some people will say, hey, this is just... Just one of those guys, he's had a good season, he'll fade away again. I don't think that's the case. I I think he can maintain this or at least be one of the premier goal scorers at his club, the premier goal scorer at his club. I think it's a brilliant story. And it's a story that whatever they had done at Southampton, they'd done their homework, they'd looked at what he could do, and they took a chance because you never know what injuries. Danny Ings, my re-signing signing of the season. Yeah, I think he cheated a little bit. Not really. I think you cheated. Not really. He uh, was not their player. He stay signed them in the summer. Yeah. Uh, let's see. I went with Bruno Fernandez, Manchester oh, United. The so low hanging fruit. Well, I'm sorry. Uh, these are so. Should I just lie and and say someone else just so I can try to like 
look like I'm cutting edge like you and, and Esteban Cambiaso. Give me a break. Uh, we uh, need to remind people that I picked as my player of the season for 14-15, Esteban Cambiaso. Right. And, well, it, and then they got rid of him, and the next year they won a title. So how important was he? But anyway, <laughs> uh, let's see. Here, uh, I want Bruno Fernandez. Here's a few things. This is from Statman Dave on Twitter. Uh, Bruno Fernandez in the Premier League, 14 appearances, eight goals, seven assists. He has more goals plus assists, 15 in his debut campaign than any other January signing in Premier League history. Now this from Planet Football. Uh, since his United debut, Fernandez has been directly involved in more Premier League goals than any other player in the league. Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo are the only players with more goal involvements in Europe's top five leagues than Fernandez since he made his United debut. And here's the big one, really. United were a different team pre him and post him. United have won uh, prim- more Premier League points, 32, than any other team since Fernandez made his debut for the club. They averaged 1.4 points per game without him in the Premier League this season. That jumped to 2.3 points per game with him. Uh, he won back to back Premier League Player of the Month awards. I mean, can, can you name the last United player to accomplish that feat, JJ? Back to back Oh, my God. Um, Robin Van Persie. Cristiano Ronaldo in 2006. <laughs> oh, my God. That's what we're talking about here. He was sensational. He was the signing of the season. Uh, and now, with the signing of the season, we go to the inverse, the worst signing of the season. Would you like to go? Yeah. I don't feel good about this one. I actually do feel good about it, but I was rooting for him at the start of the season. And I'm sure in my Premier League previews, I thought he could be a key signing. But no, uh, Sebastian Haller of West Ham United. Record signing, 45 million. Seven goals in a struggling side. Okay, but three of those came in the opening weeks of the season. This hasn't been good from West Ham's record signing. Rumors that they are trying to offload him to Monaco make sense. When you contrast his contributions with those of Mikel Antonio and even Jared Bowen in his short time at the club, and you see how they contributed to survival, it's just not a good return on 45 million. It's been bad, Andrew. It has been really bad. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I can't fault you for that. I went in a different direction and I'll say this, JJ, it's, it's not good. Like when I was going through this award, this was really, really hard to pick because there are so many yeah. le- like legitimate candidates that you can make it like, like I'm letting a couple guys off the hook here. Tangi and Dombele could have been it started sure. just 12 matches. It was their record signing, but like I gave him the benefit of the doubt because there were some injuries, the manager, we don't know how much he was to blame. So, okay. Alex Awobi, for Everton, oh, one goal, they, zero assists, 34 million pounds. But alas, JJ, I went in a different direction. And I feel a little bit bad doing this because he play, the guy. this guy plays in a fairly negative system. It's not always designed to provide him with a ton of chances. But no matter how you slice it, JJ, for a club like Newcastle to shell out 40 million on a striker who plays in 38 matches, 32 of them starts, and scores two goals, Oh, that is a bad bit of business. And oh. so it is Joel Linton. Joel Linton. Joel Linton, who takes home the undesired award. 0.07 goals per 90. 4.8 expected goals all season. Oh, He had 15 shots on target all season. That ranked 62nd in the league. He was 70th in shots per 90. Newcastle don't spend like this hardly ever. So when they do... They just cannot afford to swing and miss this badly. He's only 22. So right. Maybe there is a chance at rejuvenation. Uh, but through the first year, it is what it is. And it couldn't have gone much worse. So I, there were a lot of candidates. But sadly, I, I do feel good about the choice that I have made here. 
I, and I want to sandwich. You started this conversation about Jolene Tong with the with the comment that he, you know, plays in a side that is very negative. I want to end this segment by saying they are dreadful. Like they're very bad. Like anyone who's watched Newcastle, the football has not been good. So that is a mitigating factor. But that is that is dreadful for forty million. Just dreadful. So now JJ is like a little intermission kind of. I have here in front of me. I know you're probably most excited for this. I have here in front of me a reminder of the predictions that we made in our EPL season preview all the way back in August. You ready? Yikes! Manager of the year, I went with Pep Guardiola, and you went with. <laughs> <laughs> you went with Daniel Fark. Uh, right. <laughs> right. Let me explain. <laughs> oh, God. How do I talk my way out of this one? That was one. When we do our previews, like we put a, like, a lot of research and thought into it, like beyond what we've seen. We don't just watch games. Like we go and read stuff and try and figure out in our own minds what's a good pick. And I looked at Norwich and they're finished to the se- uh, their, their championship season. And I read around what Daniel Fark is doing at the club. And I decided I can't lose here. I think they'll stay up. And that's enough for me to get this over the line and have been a clever, clever uh, one. But no, no, no. And it's not his fault. He's still a good manager, but not that good. No, instead they, they couldn't have gone down quicker. Uh, let's see. Top scorer. Nothing to be ashamed of here for either of us. Neither of us were right, but uh, I said Sadio Mane. You said Mo Salah. Yep. Both, both very solid. Uh, player of the year. I, uh, I predicted Kevin De Bruyne. Oh, smug Andy. I feel pretty – I predict him every single year. I'm bound to be right. One of these <laughs> uh, And you predicted Bernardo Silva, JJ. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, he had such a good season last season. But, uh, I mean, everything's in the shadow when it comes to KDB right now at that club. So I don't feel terrible about that. All right. Uh, here's where it goes very poorly for me uh, from here on out. Top four in this order. Uh, fourth, I went Arsenal. Then third, I went Spurs. Oh, my God. Second, I said Liverpool. And winning the league, I said Manchester City. Uh, oh. You, JJ, had Chelsea fourth. You also had Tottenham third. I don't know why. And you... <laughs> You also had Liverpool second and Manchester City winning the league. Oh, I did have that. Yeah, I mean, I, sure I did. I've op- I've openly said that I, I I just thought it was going to be so difficult for Liverpool to go again with that same squad, and I was totally wrong. And boy, am I so happy I was. What's interesting is um, I got Chelsea right. I we really did not properly. We were hoping against hope with that Spurs pick. We were basically hoping that everything we'd seen from like January on of 2019 was wrong in the league. And we were just so way off it. I I think there was some of that. There was probably a little bit of getting swept up in the enthusiasm of their Champions League run. And, you know, kind of giving Pochettino the benefit of the doubt. Just thinking, okay, that's, that's probably more them than the struggles. And by the way... It bears repeating that, like, even with all their struggles last season, they still did manage to balance their Champions League run with top four qualification. Yeah, um, they were, they were, they stumbled into top four. It was awful. Yeah, but still, though, and then, you know, Lacelso and Dombele, um, you know, I, I don't think it was a crazy thought. It looks like it now, but at the time, I don't It feels it absurd. Anyway. <laughs> all right, relax. Um, and then, our relegation predictions. These were horrifying for oh, both of us. Oh my God. I, I, I don't think we should read them out. 
This is the first year ever that I remember both of us going 0 for 3. I said Brighton, Sheffield United, and Burnley. Uh, and you, JJ, said Crystal Palace, yeah. Brighton, and also uh, Sheffield United. So you and I had two of the three the same, and our, our other ones, Crystal Palace and Burnley, were so wrong. Uh, I, I don't know... Uh, I don't know what happened here. I mean, the, the Brighton pick was on course for happening. Um, Burnley, I mean, Burnley, what a season they put in. Crystal Palace, I just, I, and again, I'll explain the Crystal Palace. I don't have to explain the Brighton one, but the Palace and the Sheffield United one, I will. The Crystal Palace one came about by the fact I just thought, I just thought, I looked at the squad. I didn't think they had the quality. I thought they were going to fade. I wasn't sure what was I think I probably made my picks before. Like, I didn't know what was going to happen with Zaha, but I got it totally wrong, absolutely wrong. Um, and Sheffield United, so I, I've told you before about my, my Leeds United supporting friend, Wayne, and we'd had a conversation about Sheffield United. And he was he, he made the point to me after, um, after Leeds got knocked out in the playoffs, he said, last season, he said, I just don't see any good players there. And I'd only watched them maybe, I'd say twice, twice all season in the championship. And I looked through their players and Andrew, I did a prejudice. I did a prejudice. I said, there are far too many Irish guys and far too many Brits in this team. I I think they're going to get mauled. I paid no attention to the fact that they played a system that was going to absolutely mess with the top sides. Mea culpa, hands in the air, did not get it right. But we weren't the only people that didn't get it right about Sheffield United. Right. So there you go. Those were our predictions. I'd say... I give both of us this year maybe like a C on our predictions. They they were. Oh, I'm t- I'm taking a D. Okay. Oh, yeah. D. yeah. I'm, I'd like to isolate that comment. By the way. Uh, <laughs> all right. We continue, <laughs> we continue now. Uh, the Devonlings continues with our biggest surprise of the season. I'll go first here, JJ. You kind of mentioned this already. My biggest surprise was Danny Engs of Southampton. Um, first of all, I mean, for a player who's had such difficulties with injury, I, I think it's great that he appeared in all 38 games for Southampton. Started Andrew, it's unbelievable. But but I almost feel like saying that is demeaning. Like, I feel like to say that about him, it, it's almost like handing him some sort of participation trophy. Like, oh, mm. I'm so proud of you. you. You played this. But his season is so much more than that. 22 goals, and it bears mentioning, too, only one of his goals came from the penalty spot. Uh, 22 goals this season for Danny Ings. That is more Premier League goals than he had scored total since really bursting on the scene as a 22-year-old with Burnley back in the 14-15 season. Yeah. This was, like, he's good, but this uh, this was a surprise. This was kind of out of nowhere for him to have done this. So I hope he continues. He's I find him easy to root for, and uh, good for him, man. Nice to see guys bounce back from injury and, and find this level of play. Um, my surprise of the season was Sheffield United. Like I said... <laughs> I don't, it bears repeating. The team came up. You went through how, I mean, in terms of finances alone, they were just so, so far below anybody else. Andrew, they had no right to be chasing a Champions League spot for as long as they were. Like, look at the teams around ridiculous. them. It's yeah. absolutely ridiculous. And also their style of play. I don't want to throw Stevie Nickel under the bus because, I mean, it's unfair. Sheffield United already did that. And remember the hype video they did where they put together all the criticism of their system? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And Stevie Nickel was front and center. But, you know, Danny Mills the same. I mean, I probably think Danny Mills didn't even watch Sheffield United, but overlapping and, you know, full uh, center backs. backs. Like, it's amazing to me. Absolutely amazing what they did. And also, I looked at their front line, Andrew, and I thought, Billy Sharp, 
played all his career in the lower leagues. David McGoldrick, all his years in the lower leagues. And they're going to have these two guys as guys they're going to use regularly. I, I just didn't see where the goals were going to come from, where the wins were going to come from. And um, what a surprise. And a, a pleasant surprise. Yeah. Uh, all right. Now we move on to uh, one of my favorite awards that we do every year. Goal of the season. Uh, I'm going to go first here, JJ. Uh, I went with one of my favorite players in the league, Young Min's son for Spurs against Burnley. Now, Ali to the left. Son on mission to go alone. This is sensational. World class. Absolutely stunning from the Asian footballer of the year. Oh, my goodness. Off a of Burnley corner, Sun collects it for Spurs just outside his own 18. And it, he, like the thing about it, he's looking to make a pass, clearly, but like no one is really around him in position to take it. So he just kind of goes, and he keeps going, keeps going. At about midfield, JJ, I counted seven Burnley players around him without really any Tottenham player in sight as an outlet option. So he just keeps going. He goes through the whole group. Um and because it was off a corner, there's no one back deep for Burnley. He only has the keeper to beat, which is not an easy task after sprinting 70 yards, but he does it. My goal of the season, I think after this, and I'm not just saying it because Sun scored it. I was thinking about it. You know, you and I debate all the time what type of goal is our favorite. Is it like the Maisie run like this one? Is it just like a smash from 30 yards out? Is it the volley? I think that this... I think I'm ready to say that the Maisie run is my favorite because the way it just kind of like you feel the crowd kind of like build with it and it builds and builds, you know, the other ones are great, but they just bang, they just happen. Like I kind of enjoy how these like develop. Um, right. And, and the, like the atmosphere kind of develops with it. It's uh, it was awesome. It's my, it's my goal of the season. JJ. There's almost a story to a Maisie run, whereas it's just this explosion of action when a volley flies in. I get what you're saying. Although everything that hits the crossbar and goes in is always a oh, great goal. You're right. You're right. Uh, um, my goal is Neto at the London Stadium, and it should sound a little bit like this. Traoric turn. Lovely skill. Just weeds past Lanzini. Doherty stands at a back post. It did not have a 60,000 crowd. It just had a few people, Arlo White and Lee Dixon. But what I love about this goal is all the components. So you see Adama Traore do the thing we love to see him do. He quick feet, beats two players, plays it out to the overlapping Matt Doherty. A lovely, deliberate, lofted pass to the far stick. And there is Neto to volley home. Just like on the full volley. No bounce, no chest control. Bang. Rips the net open. Absolutely wonderful. And my audio was brought to you not from a potato, Andrew. Oh, good. Glad to hear it. Uh, let's see now. Our moment of the season, JJ. I'm going to go first here. Um, I had a very hard time deciding this because, honestly, I, I'm not pandering to you. Liverpool winning their first title in 30 years is a landmark moment in the history of this league. I, I, wanted, I wanted to say that, but uh, this won't surprise you. Sadly, for me, just like the unprecedented nature of what the coronavirus pandemic did to this season was so beyond the realm 
of sports and its shadow is going to just be such a large one over the memory of this season that I felt like I just, I couldn't really go in another direction. So if we're kind of boiling it down to a singular moment, I suppose it would be Mikel Arteta testing positive for the virus, um, which served as essentially the catalyst to the news the next day that all matches would be suspended indefinitely as governments around the globe look to try and figure out just what we were dealing with here. Uh, Ultimately, after much debate and soul searching, league play would resume on June 17th, but it did so in empty stadiums, solidifying a a temporary new normal that we just kind of hope and pray truly is, just as I said, temporary. Uh, But it all began with that Arteta positive test and then the news that that followed it. And uh, yeah, I, I don't, you know, you don't want that to be what the season is remembered for. Obviously, it's not it's not part of the sport. It's not part of sports in general. But God, it was just such a just such a mammoth part of, of the season. I, I hate saying it, but that is essentially my, my moment of the year. I understand why you went for that. That does make sense to me. I, on the other hand, um, my moment of the season was not actually when and um when Henderson lifted the trophy, but rather when Liverpool finally clinched and the celebrations that happened uh, after Chelsea's win at at Stamford Bridge over Manchester City, which was an amazing game itself, one of the best of the restart. And I think for me, it was Jurgen Klopp and all the players, the scenes from the, the hotel bubble that they were all in celebrating themselves. But Jurgen Klopp himself, when he came on Sky Sports, we played the audio that night. You should go back and listen. If you're a Liverpool fan, you should go back and listen to that podcast where we talk about Liverpool clinching the Premier League. That moment, we all knew it was coming, but the wave of emotion that overtook Jurgen Klopp when he's trying to talk to Kenny Dalglish and Graham Souness, and he just has to leave. He's crying. It was just such an amazing thing. And um, look, it was 30 years is too long for a club like Liverpool's wait for a championship, but they did wait. And it was just this wave of emotion. And, and that's my moment of the season. Yeah. Uh, all right. Our best 11. So how do you want to do this? Do, do we want to go through it like position by position together? Um, no. So wait, I should just give mine and then you'll give yours? No. Yeah. Because, because I think, well, I've picked a formation and everything to make sure I get the players in that I wanted. Um, and I'm sure yours is like rudimentary 4-4-2. Four three three, as a matter. Of oh, fact. okay. All right. A little more new age. Come on, JJ. Uh, all right. Well, I'll go first then. Right. Um, my goalkeeper. I went with Allison. Uh, I know he missed some time with injury, but thirteen clean sheets were third most, and he played just twenty nine matches. Um, but the thing too with him, not just like a good shot stopper, he's also among the league's best distributors. You know, he, he completed over fifty four percent of his passes that were over uh, forty yards or longer. That was best in the league. So he's he's my keeper uh in defense again this is a lot of liverpool happening here trent alexander arnold virgil van dyke um son chu uh, Soyunchu. <laughs> i can't do it and uh and andy robertson three of my back four plus keeper were all liverpool i just want to say though that it is a real shame that trent alexander arnold is a right back because Juan Basaka, Ricardo Pereira, like that position is loaded right now. No, there's not. For those guys. Dude, if you played four at the back and if you played Andy Robertson and Trent Alexander-Arnold as your wide midfielders in a 4-4-2, no one would get angry with you. Yeah, but I'm saying like there's other guys who uh, in any other year I would have felt totally comfortable making them that position. Yeah, but but I mean you could have done it. Oh, wait. So you're – oh, I see what you're doing. Oh, you 
I'm already disgusted with what you're doing. Are you setting up that like you've moved guys all over the field to try to shoehorn in? No. Oh, okay. We'll see. No, right. you'll read it as such, but that's not the case. <laughs> I'm, I, all right. Uh, my midfield, I went De Bruyne, Bruno Fernandez, and Wilfred Ndidi. Um, the, De Bruyne and Fernandez were easy for me. The, the Ndidi one, I guess, is, is the interesting one, but I, I wanted a bulldog in there. And he fits the bill. Second in the league in tackles one. Tied for the league lead in tackles one in the middle third of the field. Uh, third in the league in successful pressures. He's that guy that you just kind of hate playing against, um, which I feel like is a big compliment to players like him. And then last but not least, my attackers. I went Mo Salah, Jamie Vardy, and Reking Sterling. Uh, those guys actually ranked two, three, and four in non-penalty expected goals this year. And remember also, JJ, Salah had the uh, 10 assists to go with his 19 goals. Incredible. Um, uh, some of the guys, I felt terrible. Some of the names that I left out, uh, you know, I mentioned those fullbacks earlier. Sadio Mane, Riyad Mahrez had amazing seasons. James Madison, Grealish, Aubameyang, Martial, Raul Jimenez, yeah, uh, Fabinho, João Moutinho, Adama Traore. I know there's others, but um, there were. I mean, you could have a second team that would challenge this first team. So that's a lot of a lot of great players this season. Yeah, these are just the teams we picked. That, that you know. You are absolutely right if when you say, well, how, how, how could you have admitted Raul Jimenez? We're just making an 11. We're doing our best here. Okay. Um, other options are there. We are aware of this. So, so my team. Hear yours that will now show us how smart and different you are than the rest of us. No, I, I, I'd like to. I basically like I, I want to put in guys that, you know, maybe you wouldn't think of straight away. So in goalkeeper, I've gone for Newcastle United's player of the year which is Martin Dubravka, 11 clean sheets, and he made 137 saves, the most of any keeper in the top flight. So Dubravka starts in goal. Um, I have a back three, so I'm playing a 3-4-2-1. So at the back, I have Virgil van Dijk. I have John Egan of Sheffield United, who had an unbelievable season. And I have Sionchu as well, who I thought was fantastic for Leicester up, to, up until the fact where he decided to kick someone in the net at Bournemouth. Um, my midfield then, in centre midfield, I have Fabinho for Liverpool and I have Kevin De Bruyne. And either side of them on the wings, I have Andy Robertson and Trent Alexander-Arnold, who basically this will become a, a kind of a, almost a five at the back if needs be when it transitions to defence. Um, I have, as my two in behind my central striker, I have Sadio Mane of Liverpool, who prior to the, the coronavirus break, I think was, was Liverpool's... I, I, he was so crucial in the tight games. I remember the game away at Villa Park. He, he was brilliant for Liverpool and, and was on the way to being my footballer of the year, in fact. I have Christian Pulisic alongside Whoa. him. Christian Pulisic has impressed me, Andrew, not just in the restart, but prior to him getting injured. I know it's been an, you know a kind of an interrupted season from injury and coronavirus standpoint, but he's been outstanding for a team that finished in the top four, and I can't leave him out. I really can't. And up front, I have an out-and-out striker in Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. That's my team. Wow. I believe with that, you have now just been granted U.S. citizenship. That's all it takes. <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah. Mm. Uh, all right. And last but not least here, our player of the season. Um, I will say this was really, really difficult for me to, to make this choice. Um, I wanted badly to give it to Trent Alexander-Arnold. But I did not. He was my runner-up to Kevin De Bruyne. Ah, yes. Just so I could validate my preseason pick. Um, 13 goals, 20 assists. 
But dig deeper because we always talk about how not all assists are created equal. Go look at like a highlight reel of his assists. I mean, these are goals, essentially. Like he is creating absolute goals. It's not like a pass 30 yards away and then a guy does a lot of stuff to score. Uh, led the Premier League in shot creating actions per 90. I've gone, yeah. I've gone really deep with these metrics, JJ. Um, uh, with over seven per 90 minutes, no one else was above 6.3. Also second in the league in goal-creating actions, uh, one of only two players who averaged more than one per 90. The other was Riyad Mahrez, uh, who quietly, by the way, had a great season. Um, De Bruyne led the league in touches in the attacking third. Again, involved in everything positive that City does in attack. The guy is total class. Is he Jordan Henderson? No, but who is? Crickets. Oh, oh, that w- <laughs> but I was, still felt compelled. Sorry, was my 2019-2020 uh, player of the season. Was that one of the jokes that Andy Dick wrote for you? No, that was all me. That was all from this noggin right up here. Wow. Um, my player of the season is Trent Alexander-Arnold, consistently redefining the position of right back, as he said he would. In assists, he trails only to Kevin De Bruyne. The delivery and accuracy of his crossing, Andrew, is it's, it's just incredible. And now, as we've seen, he has added the, not added, it's always been there, but his free kick-taking ability means he's the guy you want behind the ball in attacking positions for Liverpool at set pieces. He's just absolutely outstanding for someone so young in a position that, like I said, he is redefining. It got to the point where in the debate for Football Writers Player of the Year, which was won by Jordan Henderson, uh, people were talking and making the case for Trent Alexander-Arnold, and and I, I I would have agreed with that. But one of the interesting things was he's now the conversation that kind of happened was I think it was Miguel Delaney got into a debate with some fans, and it was a good debate about comparing him with David Beckham. This is the kind of rarefied air in which he is right now. Now he has a long way to go to get to David Beckham, actually. I say that, and I don't think it's true. He's well on his way. If you look what he's won already, he really is. 21. Right. It's incredible. Yeah. And um, his consistency of delivery, that's the one thing I do remember about Beckham as a young player as well, the consistency of delivery. Now, Beckham had such a unique style of striking the ball. and Maybe Trent Alexander-Arnold does as well, but um, he is right to be discussed in, in those kind of conversations, albeit at a young age. He's my player this season. Every time he gets on the ball, Andrew, his range of passing, crossing, everything. He just He's just so exciting. And growing up, you never thought you'd say that about right backs. Never. Incredible, man. Uh, you, you mentioned the Beckham comparison. I'm curious. So, okay, England. Let's World Cup, semifinal, 90th minute, scores tied, foul, 24 yards out. Is he... Is he now the guy that everyone on that team will turn and look to immediately and say, Trent, get over here right now? I mean, if you saw the free kicks against Southampton and Chelsea, you, how could you come to any other conclusion? I agree. It's got, I think it has to be him. And look how far outside the post those, those shots are starting and the way he bends them into the top corner. It's, he, he's, he's brilliant. He yeah. really is brilliant. So there you go. That is it. Our 2020 Devonling, EPL Devonling Award Spectacular. Um, as always, we like to hear what you think of... Uh, some of the people that we've given awards to, whether or not you agree, whether or not you think we're buffoons uh, and you hate everything that we've done here. Um, but either way, I'm curious to hear all of uh, all of your thoughts and responses as well. This was fun. And, and this please. It was a season please, that happened. Please chime in with the ones that we've forgotten and that we've admitted we may have, uh, we may have overlooked. Yep.
so there you go, man. Uh, up next, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, one of our favorite people to speak with. I always love to get these opportunities. He's been on the call throughout this MLS's back tournament. One of the voices of soccer in this country right now for ESPN. John Champion. Can't wait to speak with him. That comes up next. Don't go anywhere. Oh, back now on Caught Offside. JJ, we are so thrilled right now to have one of the sport's great voices and the, the voice of soccer on ESPN. John Champion back with us on the program here now. John, what's up? How are you? Yeah, good. Thank you. Just sheltering from the remnants of this topic, tropical storm. I've got to get the name right. Isaias? Yeah, I think that's it. I think you nailed it. He sounds like a he sounds like a wingback for Stoke. Yeah, well, I thought when I looked at it first, I thought it was Isaias who played very badly for Coventry in the Premier League at one stage years ago. But Isaias, it is. But fortunately, here in Boston, we seem to have escaped uh, with minimal minimal impact. So that's good. John, are you? I I, me- I meant to ask this the last time. Um, are you? Uh, are you sheltering with a beer tonight? And if so, what beer is it? Uh, well, I'm, I thought it would be uh, reckless of me to actually appear on air with alcohol. So at the moment, it's something as boring as that. But what I have got, sadly, just out of reach, is a really nice bottle of Morgan red wine, which oh. demands my attention tonight. Because I, I have a bit of a habit. I won't drink the night before a game, which can sometimes be hard to stick to. But tomorrow night is my night before the semi-final. So I'm going to watch the other semi-final on Fox uh, and be teetotal. But tonight, I need to make up for that. So I think the entire bottle may go tonight. Wow. (laughs) Uh, Let's see. We'll get to the games and and the tournament itself in a moment. But, yeah, I I feel like there's a lot of intrigue simply around the nature of these broadcasts themselves. I mean, can you take us through just how different this experience is to be calling these matches from a studio, off a monitor, no fans – you know, what are the challenges in doing this? Yeah, many and varied, really, Andrew. I mean, the first thing I need to say is that I'm very lucky that I'm not doing the NBA because our NBA colleagues at ESPN are inside the bubble and have had to sign up to be there for three months. So that's a, that's a big ask. Um, I was open-minded. I would have gone if I was asked to go inside the bubble. But for various practical reasons, we weren't, uh, not least of which is the fact that the commentary position, the sort of the hut in which the commentators sit, for the soccer pitches at Disney Wide World of Sports in Orlando, it's actually behind one of the goals. So you just don't get a decent view. And then they considered putting us up on the scaffolding platform that they built for camera one, the main match camera. But that was going to be too difficult um, and also dangerous because if the winds get up, they couldn't guarantee our safety. And that plus all of the quarantining issues meant that we decided we would do it from ESPN Studios in Bristol, Connecticut. So that's the first part of it explained. Then it was decided that I would have to host it as well as um, commentate on it, which I know is fairly typical for American sports TV. With my European background, it's not something I'm so so familiar with. So a few weeks ago for the first game, Miami-Orlando, I found myself actually sitting in the host chair in a TV studio rather than as a guest for the first time in my career. So I had to learn on the job, really, how to, how to do that side of things. Um, and the other thing, without making this sound like a sob story, Usually, if you do an off-monitor commentary, you're in a specific off-monitor booth with a big TV, high definition, you're close to it, and everything is in your favor in terms of being able to see the entire picture and see it with clarity. Here, we're just using the monitors that are normally provided for the sports center hosts, which are actually through a piece of thick plexiglass in the desk that you see it sitting behind. So it's refractive as well. So the image that you're seeing is nowhere near as crystal clear as you'd like. So those have been the main challenges, really, plus just the sheer number of games. I mean, my semi-final this week will be, for me, game number 19 in three and a half weeks. So 
just with all the preparation and the fact that you're basically starting from scratch after three and a half months twiddling your thumbs, there have been challenges. But I think overriding all of that has just been the fact that it's been great to be back doing something moderately meaningful in this awful time and hopefully providing a bit of entertainment for people. John, apart from the fact that it's top-level soccer, it does remind me of the old junior soccer days where you'd go to the side of a field and you'd hear the ball being thwacked about and you'd hear people shouting and talking. Um, I'm, I'm wondering, like, in your early days of commentary, were there games quite similar to this that you may have been at? There were. I mean, I started off covering what's now the National League in, in England, the fifth division. It was the top tier of non-league football. And quite often the crowd at a game there would be four or five hundred. So... It's not massively different. There are 300 people inside the the little stadium-ish area uh, in Orlando with all the sort of hangers-on from both teams and the staff. Um, At the Premier League at the moment, behind closed doors, those games in the back end of the season, uh, Project Restart, they have 300 people in the area as well, but no more than that. So, yeah, there are similarities. I think what I've had to be careful of is that our bosses have invested a lot of time, effort and money in embedding microphones in the pitch, putting microphones and cameras in places we wouldn't normally have them um, and they're very keen to get bang for their buck so I've been encouraged to lay out an awful lot to make sure that we can hear those things and when it works it's great so we had a team talk by the San Jose coach Matias Almeida the other day during one of the hydration breaks and we were able to hear word for word and at the same time see him being really demonstrative and his interpreter uh, interpreting it and translating it in real time and that was really good dramatic television. We've had other occasions where the directors have still been getting used to some of the toys they've been given and they've honed in on one coach who's been speaking Spanish, whilst the sound has been from the other coach of the other team who's not on pitch who's speaking English. So we've had one or two lessons that we've learned along the way as well. Uh, let's see, the semifinals, John, not necessarily, I guess you would say the usual suspects, although that's not necessarily to say that it's a total shock to see any one of these four at this stage. I want to start with Philly. Uh, you were on the call of their quarterfinal win. And, you know, with Jim Curtin, it's interesting because I feel like we're not that far removed from when there were there were people calling for his job in Philadelphia. Does it feel like he's he's kind of starting to have a bit of a moment here where his profile in terms of coaches in this league is is kind of upping a level? I think so. I mean, uh, hand in glove with his team getting better and better. Um, and I think he deserves a lot of credit. He's in his seventh season now in that job. And if you sit down and talk to him, and he's a very unassuming sort of guy, Uh, He'll say he's immensely grateful to the ownership of the club for allowing him as a very young coach when he first started to make mistakes without the penalty of losing his job. So really, if you look at their progression, they've increased their points tally in each of the last five seasons. And there's no better measure than that to the point now where they can go toe to toe with the very best, certainly with the group of players they've got at the moment. The question, not in the context of this tournament, but of probably this season going into next, is how many of those better younger talents is he going to be able to hang on to? Brendan Aronson is coveted by half a dozen clubs in Germany's Bundesliga and looks excellent at 19. And the centre-back Mark McKenzie has been heavily linked with a move to Celtic in Scotland as well. And it's part of the uh, modus operandi of a club like Philadelphia with limited financial means that they do need to sell players every year. So at some point they're going to go. But I think the encouraging thing for union supporters is that the academy there is starting to become particularly productive. And Curtin knows all the prospects. I mean, Aronson's younger brother, Paxton, He's supposed to be just as good a player, and he's in the academy at the moment, maybe a couple of years behind Brendan. So they are bringing players through. And yes, I think we are hitting a moment of realisation that Jim Curtin is actually in the very top echelon of MLS coaches. John, Jim Curtin gets time, needs time. Hmm. Oscar Pereja gets the start. Okay, he starts in December, needs very little time. 
This mm. this Orlando team has really impressed me in the way that they've played such a coherent style of play. They look really good. Is he kind of maybe perhaps, uh, you know, the way we always say managers need time? Is, is that actually true when you look at what he's done? Well, in a sense, he's had time within the MLS structure, hasn't it? It's his 10th season as an MLS head coach with his third different club. So he knew what he was coming into. He knew the players he was inheriting, their strengths and weaknesses. One or two had played for him before in Dallas. Mm. And he's been able to add not many in terms of numbers, but significantly, like Antonio Carlos, the big Brazilian centre-back, has made a, a major difference. Junior Urso, another Brazilian in midfield before he got injured, was also a, a significant upgrade on what they had before. And he's got his main designated player, Nani, producing on a regular basis and at critical moments of matches. So he's got three pillars there that he can rely on. They've even managed to absorb the loss through injury of Don Dwyer for the next six months. So, yeah, he's done really well. But I don't think anyone's that surprised because of what he did at Dallas. Yeah, this tournament, it's it's funny. It's lacked uh, a Carlos Vela, Joseph Martinez. We, we saw Josie Altidore for all of, what, 30, 35 minutes. Mm. But I think one of the fun things about it, and, and you mentioned Aronson as one of the names, some of the other names that have really emerged during these last few weeks, I'm curious if there's a particular player or, or a set of players who have really kind of caught your eye so far. Well, I, I would have to start by saying the biggest pity is that we didn't see FC Dallas because to me they've got the best and largest collection of really good young players in MLS under Luchi Gonzalez, who used to be their academy coach as well. So knows all their strengths and indeed their weaknesses. So it's a great pity we didn't get to see them, but for very understandable reasons, that wasn't possible, nor with Nashville. But I think you look at Brendan Aronson, you look at Chris Mueller at Orlando. Sadly, he's now struggling with his shoulder injury. Um, and they are just the flag bearers for a group of maybe six, seven, eight young talents, largely American, who've thrust themselves to the forefront in these strange circumstances at this tournament. So I know Greg Berhalter was there for the entirety of the group stage and some of the round of 16, actually patrolling the pitch uh, and taking first-hand note of these young talents that are coming through. And I do know that he's been very encouraged by the depth of the pool of talent that he now feels he's going to be able to work with in what's going to be a really busy time for the US men's national team, because they've got World Cup qualifiers starting before too long. They need some tune-up friendlies. They've got the Gold Cup. And they've got the Olympics as well to think about. So some of those under 23-year-olds are going to be prime property when it comes to selecting a squad for the Olympic Games. Uh, John, is, is Adrian Heath building something beyond for beyond this tournament? Because tournament football is very different to, to a league, um, even, even in MLS where there is playoffs built in. But is, is Minnesota a team that's growing and getting better under him? Yeah, but I think this tournament has only shown what we already knew. I mean, look at the improvement last year, finalists in the US Open Cup, into the playoffs for the first time in their history, playing some lovely football, fantastic new stadium. He'd done his two years penance with them as an expansion club where they were getting hammered just about every week. Right. And people at times were calling for his head. But he always said, this is a three-year project to get us to a stage where we can be respectable and respected. And history has borne him out. And now he has the luxury of having a team that can compete with the best sides, as he's shown on a regular basis, and with the prospect that they will get better. Don't forget, they're there at the moment without the best defender in MLS last year, Ikepara. Huge miss, but they managed to cover for that. The other night, they were without Roman Metanier, the right fullback, who's probably the best in his position in the entirety of the league. He was injured. He put uh, one of the top five rookies from last year, Hassani Dotson, in, and he gave a barnstorming Cafu-like performance at right back. So that was good. And they do seem to have the depth that if any particular player is missing, they have somewhere of not dissimilar standard that can step up. Plus, as soon as the transfer window 
reopens at the end of this tournament. They're signing uh, a playmaker from Boca in Argentina, Emmanuel Reynoso, and uh, a sizable, powerful Malian central defender who's played in the French League for the last few years. So reinforcements are coming in. He's got two DP slots that he has still to occupy. Reynoso will take one of those. There's still room in their roster for other work, other chicanery to strengthen the squad till further. And he told me that the other day he's already working on the makeup of his squad for next year because he's not sure how much of a regular season we're going to get. Yeah. Uh, one note on Portland, too. It's funny, you know, we're talking about some of the young players that have emerged, and I'm watching mm. Portland, and, and his role has changed. But that, that Diego Valeri can still play, huh? He can. And isn't he fortunate to have his great pal, Sebastian Blanco, alongside him as well? And we're seeing a bit of a changing of the guard. Valeri, 34. To me, he looks fitter, leaner, slimmer than he's done for 10 years. And he has a, a Spanish dietitian who comes to visit him, or did pre-pandemic, every three months um, to examine the minutiae of how he lives his life, what he eats, what he drinks, how he exercises, areas of his body that need particular work in terms of strength and conditioning. And this is what's transformed him. And he looks a player renewed. And I think we're seeing that. Also, Giovanni Savarese, the coach, is limiting his game time quite cleverly. Rarely does he start two games in rapid succession. And it has the other benefit of allowing Sebastian Blanco, who not by accident wears number 10, to play as the number 10 half of the time. Now, you'd always want Blanco in your team. And for me, he's a very strong contender to be the MVP of this tournament so far. I think he's been terrific. But it takes some of the heat off Valeri. And I think in so doing, probably extends his fellow Argentines' career. So it's it's win-win, really. John, do you expect Valeri to stay long-term in this bit-part role? Or do you think he's going to have one last big swan, swan song somewhere else? Or I mean, he seems to love Portland. He probably doesn't want to go anywhere else. Well, he does. I mean, he's accepted the new reality that he's no longer a designated player. Yeah. Uh, and that was a wrangle at the end of last season, which very nearly saw him leave the club after he'd fallen out with significant personnel there but he seems to be enjoying himself he's 34 now if Savarese is saying look it's in your best interest not to start every game so maybe you only start if you play 40 games in all competition you start 20 you come off the bench in 15 you're not going to want to pay big money for that if you're someone else I think at this stage yeah you want to you want to pay your big money for someone that's going to start be a game changer every week rather than every other week so for that reason I can see him playing another season, maybe two in Portland in this role, and then retiring gracefully. And I'm sure that Merritt Paulson, the owner, well, I know that Merritt Paulson, the owner, is keen to find him an ongoing role beyond that so that they keep him within the Timbers family. Uh, John, one more from me, and it's not MLS related, but uh, you're also, of course, one of ESPN's voices of the U.S. men and a longtime voice of the Premier League as well. Christian Pulisic, JJ and I were talking mm -hmm. about him right before you joined. Uh, and I just wanted to get your thoughts. Have you heard from friends and family back in England saying, John, why, why don't you tell us about this kid early? <laughs> well, I think you have to realize that, unfortunately, and this is all about the wrong attitude, the myopic, blinkered attitude of English football fans in particular. They look at American players and think, well, they might be OK, but they won't be brilliant. Well, he's the one that breaks the mold, if that ever was the case, because I think you could make the case that Clint Dempsey and quite a few others were brilliant in the past. But that's another argument for another day. But that scepticism has been washed away by Christian Pulisic because they're seeing a potentially world-class player coming in at Chelsea and making a huge impact in his first season. People have tried to make out that he and Frank Lampard don't always see eye to eye. I'm not having that. I think Lampard has actually managed him really well. And the way that he gradually fed him into the team at the start of the season, I think in retrospect, did do Pulisic a favour. It's a great shame he's got injured now. 
the flip side of that is that hopefully he's got enough time to recover to be a major force at the start of next season. But I think every Chelsea fan that I talk to about, about Pulisic just says, hey, what a fantastic buy. John, this is my final one, and I don't want to put you in the invidious position of asking who do you think is going to win the whole thing out, but I will ask you, the best player you've seen so far in this tournament, who's the guy who stood out to you and said, he is by far and away the best player I've seen? I'm, I'm not sure there's anyone that is by far and away uh, the best player that I've seen, JJ. I mean, there, you could put a case for Andre Blake, the Philadelphia goalkeeper. Um, you could put a case as the best young player, certainly for Brendan Aronson. Um, you could look at LAFC. I thought Rossi was excellent whilst he was with them, but the team ran out of legs. Um, and I think you could also look at one or two unlikely players in unsung teams that probably performed above themselves. But if you're going to nail me to the wall and say, name one player uh, who has stood out more than anyone else for you, it would be Blanco at Portland. We know what he can do, but he's not always done it consistently in the past. Here he has and he may prove to be the telling factor that sees the Timbers win the tournament. Our thanks so much to John Champion, who joined us a little bit earlier today. Uh, we appreciate him giving us some time in what is a very busy time for him as he's prepping for the semifinal. But like I said, he'll be on the call uh, Thursday night, ESPN2, 8 o'clock, uh, Orlando City and Minnesota United FC. Um, so, yeah, uh, what do you think? I mean, we uh, we should at least give a thought or two as we're on the eve of of the uh, resumption of the tournament. Yeah, I, I think the door is open now for, for Orlando. I think as good as Minnesota are, I think Orlando are better. I don't actually like betting against Minnesota. They've been so resilient in this tournament. I'm just going to say Orlando will go through to the final. I think I think Portland will go through on the other side, and I think Orlando's going to win it. Orlando is your pick. It's interesting. I I can't imagine that they've benefited from like this being in Orlando. It feels like like pure coincidence. No, but but whatever preseason work they did and whatever restart work they got in has really benefited them. Yeah. But John mentioned that Pereja knows what how, what works in MLS and he's got a system. Yeah, sure, but and he's brought in some of his own players. I understand all that, but it, like in terms of of some of the other sides we've seen they look streets ahead and he's only been manager since December. Yeah. Uh, I mean, of the four that have reached the the stage of the tournament, they are the one that missed out on the MLS postseason several months back. Yeah. Uh, and yet they're the ones that they've been, they've been very good. There's no question about it. And, you know, I do give credit to Nani um, because he has come over uh, and in this tournament, at least he's been great for them. Um, he looks, he looks laser focused, Andrew, and he looks like he's assumed a team leadership role as well, which kind of surprised me, but I get he's the elder statesman. Now we should expect this. Yeah. I mean, seeing them take LAFC out the way that they did, uh, the way LAFC, I mean, John mentioned Diego Rossi, who, if I don't know if I can make him my player of the tournament, if, if they go out at the quarterfinal stage, but my God, he was, I mean, he was sensational and you just wonder what are they going to look like when Vela comes back? My God, they, they could be scary. Um, as we would expect from them, but uh, these last uh, last three matches should be a lot of fun. It's been uh, it's been a lot of fun so far. And with that, let's go to another tournament right now that's about to resume over in Europe. That's right, the UEFA Champions League resumes this Friday. Round of 16, second legs. Um, I'll, let me just go through the games that are coming up, and then we'll kind of give some reminders to people. Uh, Friday, these are at three o'clock on Friday. Juventus and Lyon, with Lyon holding a one nil advantage right now over Juve in aggregate. Uh, and then 
Manchester City and Real Madrid with City up 2-1 over Real Madrid. Saturday at 3 o'clock, Barcelona and Napoli, 1-1 is the aggregate there. And uh, Bayern Munich and Chelsea, it's 3-0 right now in favor of Bayern. Um, we'll, we'll get into a couple specifics in a sec, but a, a couple reminders for people as we get ready for mm. this. Quarterfinals and semifinals are going to be single leg. Uh, quarterfinals and onward will be part of a 12-day tournament that's going to take place in Portugal. Uh, what we already know with regards to the quarterfinals is this. August 12th, Atalanta will face PSG. August 13th, RB Leipzig will face Atletico Madrid. August 14th will be the winner of Nap- uh, Napoli-Barcelona against the winner of Bayern Munich-Chelsea. That Bayern-Barca could be uh, wow. And then August 15th, the winner of Real Madrid-Manchester City against the winner of Leon Juventus, uh, which could potentially set up a Real Madrid Juventus uh, quarterfinal, which would be a Cristiano Ronaldo um, renewal uh, there against his former club. Although I don't know if I see it going that way. Uh, what do you think? What do you think heading into these? Um, I'm fascinated with the with the City Real Madrid game. Yeah, I, I I think it's it's just it's finely poised. You wonder about Real Madrid and if they've watched Manchester City, I'm sure they've watched City closely. They'll be looking at tape of them even during this restart, but even prior to that, Andrew, and the game we mentioned, um, City versus Wolves, like there's a way for them to get back into this tie. There's a way for them to win. And just look at the Arsenal game. Don't look any further than the FA Cup final. Andrew, City are going to dominate the ball. That's what they do. They're not going to change their style of play. But look how quickly you can get them on the back foot with a ball over the top. Look at Tierney's ball for Aubameyang. Look at, um, like I said, the Wolves City game. Balls over the top, into the channels. They struggle with that. And I'm going to say something that sounds outlandish considering the position he finds himself at the club completely cut aside. But Gareth Bale is tailor-made for this game. And I, I, did you see the video today that's doing the rounds? Uh, his interview? No, no. So, so I've got the interview. That's a different story. Okay. So the interview was he. Um, are you talking about the interview he did with the golfing podcast guy? Where he's like, I love his voice. He's he's very whimsical uh, in the way he speaks. He's like, yeah, a crowd of eighty thousand booing. Oh well, well let's 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 hear that whimsy right now. I've had eighty thousand people in the stadium whistling me because I haven't played well. The first time was a bit like, oh, what is this? Yeah, yeah it's, it's not nice. Eighty thousand people, <laughs> and it whistling. doesn't do your confidence that great. That really either, but um why would your home fans do that that's really brutal this is the biggest question and i just don't get it because you would expect if you're not having a good time on the pitch you would expect your fans to get behind you and try and make you do better because it'll make them happy but it seems to be that they do the opposite they just whistle you which consequently makes you feel worse you lose your confidence and then you play worse which you're going to make them even more upset yeah he sounds like a guy that's just transferred into the football world. He sounds like a golfer who's decided to take up football. What are you talking about, Gareth? This is what he—he's utterly shocked by the fact that Real Madrid, Real, Real Madrid fans will whistle when he doesn't play well. One day, uh, one day, JJ, I would like to. Whenever I don't know what's going to happen with him, but I would like to do a deep dive, whether it's with Graham Hunter, um, Dermot Corrigan, any of these guys that cover this day in day out. Like why exactly it is that his relationship with that club, with that fan base, why it has gone the way that it has? Because how like how many huge goals has he scored? Yeah. 
Like you would think that he's had moments where he is just where he could do no wrong, where he could be awful going forward from that day forth, and and it doesn't matter. Like there would be a statue of him outside of that stadium. Uh, I I'm so curious. Like I feel like you could write a book about his time at that club, and I don't know. He's on six hundred thousand pounds a week. Where is he going? No yeah. one is taking that on. Like he can't. I don't know. I can't envision him continuing to play there because the relationship is just so fractured. But like, where's he going to go? Other than like some club in China, yeah, where they, well, you know, that they, already... they shot these exorbitant amounts of money to bring in these high-profile players that can't go anywhere else. Yeah, but you you say uh, that like, that's exact that's that exactly that's exactly the deal that was on the table last summer, and Real Madrid reneged on it. They've created this rod for their for their own back. Going back to what I was saying though, so they showed a video at training. And look, it, it looked edited to me, but it's it's Gareth Bale in a kind of a keep-away session. And he's just standing there. Everyone else is kind of moving. Andrew, he's standing there. He's not doing anything. He's not participating. But my point about Manchester City is now is the time you'd want Gareth Bale running into the channels, running onto those balls. The, the quick transition that Real Madrid can that can spring on Man City, we've seen it a million times this season. It's their Achilles heel. And I just feel it's frustrating if you're a Real Madrid fan to say a guy like Gareth Madrid, uh, Gareth Bale not being involved with Madrid. It's it's bonkers, man. It's crazy. By the way, he's I should mention he was a great player and he's just wasting away. He's talking to um Eric Anders Lang. Not to be critical of, of him, of the interviewer, but like <laughs> like I mean his the way he approaches this idea that Bale is being booed by his fans, like it's this alien concept, like, right, but wait a minute, your your own fans are booing you. Like, why would they do that? Like, because this is sports. Like, this happens in every stadium in the in the world. Like, but Andrew, Eric Anders Lang is a golf podcaster, and I'm sure he's very fine at the job that he does. Yeah, I'm not, yeah. but like I said, Gareth Bale is talking like a you know a golf star that's been dropped into a football scenario. He right. can't be shocked at this, and certainly not at Madrid. But my point being is, there's a way back in for Real Madrid if they choose to, uh, if they choose to use that avenue. The the t- the two teams I'm most interested in right now, um, boy, for all the negativity around Barcelona, it's like you forgot. Like, wait a minute, <laughs> they could still win the Champions League. One uh, one against Napoli, if they can find it, if they can like just rally. You know, this is all single leg now. So it's not even that they necessarily need to be the best team, um, which you're more likely to see advance over the course of two legs as opposed to just a one-off. So who knows if Messi can just like get hot and carry them across the finish line. I will be so, so curious as to what happens with Barcelona. I'm super curious to see if uh, if his kind of broadside that he launched right at the end of the season where he called his team weak, if that actually has had an effect on things for the good. That would, that would That's fascinating to me. Who do you think is the best team remaining? I just want to finish on that. Oh, God, that's a good question. The best team remaining. For me, I have it down to two. I think it's I think it's probably I want I think it's probably Bayern Munich and Manchester City. Oh, that's the same two I had. I I, I don't and I don't want to disrespect Juventus. We've barely spoken about their title win on this podcast, but it's been a title win that's been greeted with total, not total, but a lot of negativity. And um, and I'm just curious. This doesn't seem to be working with Sari, like, and the multiple amount of attacking midfielders and creative midfielders he has, and 
It's just, I know they've won the league, but I feel as if they're going to come up short again, yet again in the Champions League. But um, yeah, for me, it's Bayern Munich based on the form that they finished the Bundesliga in and also Manchester City based on how they are when they're at their, their very best. Yep. So there you go. That was that was a, a big, heavy podcast, JJ. I look forward now to ending this and going outside and cleaning up the branches that are littered around my uh, my yard. This has been a weird podcast because of the weather, I guess. There's some kind of a delay and, you know, it it, it seems as if I'm stepping on your words a bit. And yeah. it's just, it's, today was a, with a tornado warning in New York City, today was a very weird day. I just want to say also, while you're kind of mentioning this, that like, so throughout all of this that's gone on with the pandemic and people working from home, you, you have certain people, and, and by the way, no fault to these people saying this, I understand the conveniences of working from home. I've been doing it now for the last four plus five months or whatever it's been. Um, but like you hear some people who are like, you know what? This works for me. I'm never going back. If my boss will allow me to do this, JJ, I can't wait. And it's no offense. I don't mean it like about my family. It's been amazing being around my kids so much and watching them like grow up. This is like cherished stuff, but doing this podcast, like God, I, I, I so, so miss uh, doing it in the same studio together. Um, it's been good. And I feel like we've done, you know, we've done a good job of, of handling it, but, ah, oh man, I miss it. I miss it so much. And, um, and I, yeah, it's, it's just not the same. I need my routine back. I love the trip up to the, to the studio. Um, we get in together, we, we, we have fun. We can see each other. It feels normal. I've had enough of this, to be honest with you. I'm at my wit's end. And I've had enough of you. <laughs> uh, well, hey, this was fun, man. Enjoy the upcoming MLS action. Enjoy the Champions League action coming up this weekend. The soccer never, ever stops. To you, I say... Check you later, fun boy. See you later, man. Take care. You've been listening to the Caught Offside Soccer Podcast. 